I want to welcome you to a public conversation convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Hubert H. Humphrey School. This is the Public Affairs School at the University of Minnesota. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty at the Humphrey School in the University of Minnesota, and I am director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance. Uh, this virtual conversation is part of a longstanding series that we've had. We should do several dozen a year. Um, if you're interested, you can find them online. This will be recorded and made available if you'd like to go back to it. Uh, I do want to mention that if you'd like to participate in today's conversation, you can do so by going to the bottom of your screen. You'll see at the very bottom, there's a, a, a icon Q&A. Just click on that and give us your questions and we'll get to as many as possible. I often filter them into uh, the conversation we have going, so it's quite helpful. Uh, I do want to take a moment and mention some of the upcoming programs. We've got a program on uh, May 27th uh, at noon central time. Uh, this is on health reform and how the health system uh, might adapt to the coronavirus and the healthcare crisis that we now face. Uh, Joel Ario, who was the healthcare czar under Obama and now works for Manette Consulting, uh, will be with us as well as uh, Senator Michelle Benson, Republican uh, from Minnesota uh, State Senate. Uh, we also have coming up um, next Thursday uh, a program on vote by mail. This is part of a series that we've been doing on elections. Uh, this one is obviously quite important for the debate over how to vote in a time of the coronavirus and do so in a way that is safe and secure. Uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar will be participating with, on that program along with three well-known, highly respected election administrators. Uh, if you're interested in that topic, that'll be quite good. We have coming up on June uh, 2nd, a program on poll worker training um, and we'll send more information out about that. On June 11th at 11 Central Time, John Malcolm, who's the commissioner in Minnesota of the Department of Health, will be joining us to talk about Minnesota's handling of the coronavirus crisis. I am very excited to have uh, two outstanding guests with us today, good friends of mine for a number of years. Anna Greenberg, who has a PhD from Chicago, uh, is joining us. She is a managing partner of public opinion research at the firm GQR. Uh, she has been a pollster in many, many campaigns uh, and has taught at Harvard University's Kennedy School. Finn Weber is a partner at the Mercury firm uh, where he provides strategic advice on legislative and executive uh, 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 dynamics and processes. He represented Minnesota for a decade between, excuse me, a dozen years between 1981 and 1993. Uh, he is a prominent strategist within the Republican Party. So without further ado, very excited to start our start. conversation. Um, Anna, let me begin with you. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Um, you know, you look at Donald Trump heading into this campaign and an incumbent hasn't faced the kind of dire political and economic and public health circumstances that he faces in probably at least a century. 
Uh, so it's very, it's quite dire. And yet, when you look at the polls, we see that in battleground states, uh, Joe Biden might have a lead, but it's usually a pretty small one. Um, and in some states, Donald Trump has a little bit of a lead in these battleground states. Uh, CNN did a, a survey of all the battleground states and found that President Trump had a lead uh, in that whole group rather than looking at the individual uh, states. When you look at the president's approval rating, it's just a few points less than where Barack Obama was at this point back in 2012. Um, and on issues about uh, trust in terms of managing the economy, the president does as well as Joe Biden, sometimes a bit more. Why isn't Joe Biden doing better, given how horrible the circumstances are for President Trump? Well, I think it's rooted in the partisan polarization in this country that um, while certainly there have been other periods in American history where we've had polarization, certainly in our modern era, we're probably at sort of peak partisan polarization. What it means is that anybody you know, who's a Democrat is voting for a Democrat and anybody who's a Republican is voting for a Republican. And so there's very little, there are very few persuadable or swing voters in the electorate. And that means that you're numbers move very much. They're going to stay within a certain range. And in fact, if anything, what matters more is turnout, who's enthusiastic about turning out to vote. Um, and that is something the polls can't predict. So what the polls are reflecting is partisan polarization, where there's a 40% of this electorate that are Trump fans, no matter what, no matter, you know, no, no how, no way, and probably 45 or 47% who are Democrats because there are more Democrats than Republicans, and then that narrow slice in the middle. But until we actually have the election and know who's going to come out to vote, we don't exactly know, um, you know which way it's going to swing. And, and certainly in 2016, you had a very similar dynamic with Hillary Clinton nationally leading throughout and in fact won the popular vote. But the turnout patterns, there were some problems with the polls too, but there were some turnout patterns that were not anticipated in 2016, especially the increase of the white blue collar vote uh, and the magnitude of the shift of white blue collar voters to Hillary Clinton that determined the outcome in Trump's favor, at least winning the electoral college. Those are things that are actually kind of hard to anticipate in polling. And so you're gonna see a, probably a pretty stable presidential vote up you know, through, I mean, of course, I don't wanna make any predictions about anything given what happened in 16, but Trump's ratings have been very stable for three years. The congressional vote has been very stable for three years. And the presidential vote's been pretty stable since we've been doing a head-to-head matchup. And it wouldn't surprise me if it stays stable until November. Uh, Finn Weber, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to have you. Um, good to be with you, Larry, and, th and thanks to the Humphrey School. I'm proud to say I've had an association with Humphrey since 1994, and it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. It's a great asset to the state. And I want to say also it's a delight to be with my friend Anna Greenberg. We've, we've done these kinds of things together for years and years now, going back to uh, National Public Radio, which had us on fairly regularly during some campaign seasons, and it's always a, a delight to be with her. Although I, I say, you know, Same here. I, I always say Anna cheats just a little bit because I come with very strong opinions and then she comes with data. So she's always <laughs> got the advantage. Data is power. Well, Vin, actually, let me pick up on that. Uh, let's talk about a little data. Um, if you go back to the 2016 election, of course, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by just under 3 million votes. He won the election because he carried the electoral college by winning three states by less than 80,000 votes, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin. 
And if you look at polls right now, the president is substantially behind the Pennsylvania and he's a bit behind in the other states. And then there are states he carried where it's a toss up or um, uh, Joe Biden's ahead by a little bit. Uh, should Republicans be nervous? Um, nervous, but not panicked. I, I think that the, the president is behind today and congressional Republicans are behind today. But as we all know, the election isn't today. And uh, polling data is valuable. I don't discount it at all. I'm sort of a, a, I'm not a professional like Anna, but I'm an amateur polling junkie, but it's not predictive. I think that the president won through a very narrow path last time, and I think it's difficult for him. I think Pennsylvania is particularly difficult. Also Michigan. Wisconsin seems to be a little more competitive, a little better for him, but it's going to be a tough election. Um, I, I've always thought that the, the, I, a lot of what I thought from the beginning of this campaign is, has gone into the, the wastebasket because of the coronavirus. I always thought the strength of the economy was the most important thing for the president. <laughs> The ability to portray the Democrat, whoever he would have been, we now know it's Biden, as too far to the left was the second most important thing. And third, but still important, was the technological advantage uh, in, that a, an incumbent president usually has in running for re-election. I still think the president has the third of those. I think his, the, the, the Trump campaign is going to be extraordinary. And just as Obama and Clinton had technological advantages when they were running for election and Bush, uh, because they had four years to build their campaign uh, while the other side is figuring out who their candidate is, Trump will have that advantage. But the first two are in question. The Democrats did not nominate Bernie Sanders. They're nominating Joe Biden. And the economy today is very bad. But uh, I that may all be, as I said, thrown in the wastebasket because we don't know what's going to happen over the course of the next several months. And it may be that unlike, unlike most elections, this one is still determined by things that are going to happen very close to the election. People's perceptions of the economy, people's perceptions of how the president has handled the coronavirus issue. Not today, but by, you get, by the time you get to the fall and people have to make voting decisions. So yeah, nervous. Uh, his path was narrow. It's not getting any wider today, but not panicked yet. Can I add one thing about the Bernie Sanders socialism issue? I think that because the stimulus package and subsequent funding for small business loans was passed with a huge bipartisan vote and it's massive government spending, it's very difficult now to make the argument that Democrats are the socialists who want government to take over the economy and are the big spenders because it's actually now, also the Republicans. <laughs> and we're all socialists now, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that that's, I think that that's true. It's changed the circumstances under which we're looking at all these issues. I never thought branding the Democrats as socialists was the right thing. I, I do think you can talk about movements to the left that might scare some people. Uh, you get into states uh, like Pennsylvania, for instance, and the, the Democrats promise to ban fracking. I think is a legitimate issue. That's gone too far to the left. We have states like in, in Pennsylvania, the Democrats and Republicans have sort of come together on a very uh, proscriptive uh, uh, regime to allow fracking. Uh, it's, it's environmentally sensitive. It takes, it takes into consideration all sorts of other concerns. But to just ban it outright, I think, would be considered an extreme position. The Democrats are promising. That's just one example 
it's not the same as branding the whole party as a socialist party, which I agree with you. We're kind of all socialists now, but there are some issues where they've gone a little too far to the left, and that's a legitimate issue. But Vin, do you think the effort by Democratic governors to uh, create stay-at-home orders and create other rules uh, regarding the uh, physical distancing uh, as a result of coronavirus, does that tap into that kind of populist anti-government sentiment? Well, it certainly is right now, uh, but a majority of the people clearly support uh, restrictive measures today. And most of the governors that impose those, including probably the most controversial one being Governor Whitmer in Michigan, most of them see you know, fairly solid popular support for their position today. But that's not to, uh, to underestimate, in my view, the strength and intensity of the other side of this argument, which says we've got to open up the economy We've got to get back to work. Those, and, and you know, it's it's interesting to me. We talk about Anna talked a little bit about turnout. Um, more, and she knows the numbers better than I do. Most of the polling that I have seen says something that's a little bit surprising to me, and that is that there seems to be more intensity among the Trump supporters than among the anti-Trump voters. That is surprising to me. But I think it's reflected in the reaction to the shutdown where the, the, the people that are in favor of it are, yeah, I'm, I'm home, I think this is a good idea, I'm in favor. The people that are against it are seeing their businesses lost and their jobs lost and they're really angry about it. And I think there's the always people who are for it are also intensities losing their on jobs. the other side. And the people who are for it are also losing their jobs and on yeah, other right, not fair. just the people who are against it. Fair um, point. So. But, but Anna, just following up on this point, um, do you see this as a, a risk for Democrats that the, I mean, if you look at the polls on enthusiasm, uh, they do seem to um, favor the Trump supporters. Um, and um, when you look at um, uh, just, let's say, a general pattern, over time, we've tended to see um, a greater number of Republicans voting than we would have expected in polls of registered voters. Um, and so how do you, how do you sort through who's going to show up on election day? Well, I think a couple things. Enthusiasm is, which is self-reported, right? It's not an objective measure of whether or not someone's going to come out and vote or not. It's just whether or not they feel motivated, uh, is one measure of, um, that helps you think about what the electorate might look like. I have seen two patterns, one which is, you know, Republicans are more enthusiastic and also people are more likely to say Trump is going to win than Biden's going to win. And there's some political science research about this that suggests that that would also mean that Biden supporters are less motivated. I think one of the things, and this is sort of more anecdotal than it is data driven, but I think for a lot of Democrats, there's this sense of this guy's going to steal the election with, again, with Russia, um, that no matter what we do, um, they're going to suppress the vote. Um, and so I think some of that enthusiasm slash Trump's going to win over Biden is as much about fear um, about how what's going to happen and will it even matter if I vote, if my vote's not counted. <clears throat> and we already have seen lots of bad stuff. There was lots of bad stuff that happened in 18. There's always lots of bad stuff on voter suppression from the Republicans. Um, but there's even been bad stuff. Like if you look at Wisconsin and four voting mm -hmm places in, um, in Milwaukee, for example, um, th that there's that fear. And so I think that's part of it. And I don't think that necessarily means that they're not going to come out to vote. 
Um, there are other measures of enthusiasm as well. So how many people are running? We've just had historic numbers of people run in 18 and, and we continue to have historic numbers of people running in 2020. How much money are people raising? Democratic candidates are out substantially outraising um, their opponents, uh, substantially. Um, you know, uh, I work for Mark Kelly in, um, in Arizona. Um, I think he's raised about $30 million so far, but I mean, if you, so there are a bunch, and then if you, there's a bunch of different measures you look at around enthusiasm. And a lot of those um, were indicators of what happened in 18 and they're still there. So I'm not as sort of pessimistic that Democrats aren't going to come out because of this differential enthusiasm. I am worried about what Republicans are gonna do in certain states, and I am grateful. I mean, if you mentioned I'm a Democratic pollster, so I can have part. I can express my partisan views here. That Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan have Democratic governors. They have Republican legislatures, but that vastly increases the chance. So I think Wisconsin's hard because the legislature thinks it can just take away all the power of the governor. Um, increases the chances that there'll be less mischief in those places. I am worried that there are states like, you know, that have never really had a lot of early voting before or vote by mail before. Um, and they're gonna have it for the first time and that certain groups of democratic voters, particularly people of color, don't trust vote by mail as much as they trust voting in person. So I'm less worried about the self-report of enthusiasm than I am the actual mechanics of what's gonna actually happen on election day. And I think they disproportionately hurt Democrats. And I wanna go back to uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan in the closing days of- We'd, 19- we'd all like to. <laughs> 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 okay. Fair enough, closing, closing days of the 1980 election, right. he famously uh, asked the question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Uh, if Joe Biden were to put that question to Americans in the fall, uh, lots of polling, including by the Republican Party, suggests that, that um, Donald Trump would lose. Um, and while there may be an, an improvement in the, uh, in the second quarter of the year, excuse me, the second half of the year uh, from the near depression circumstances now, I don't think anyone's expecting it to be a dramatic improvement. Do you think an improvement from let's say 36 million people unemployed to perhaps 15 million, is that enough for Donald Trump to escape the Ronald Reagan question? Um. That's a good question and a good point. And, you know, several months ago, the president was hoping that people would ask that question. Uh, Now, not so much and probably not the question he wants to look at going into the fall. I I agree with you. I I think the economy is going to get better, but not enough better so that people will say they're better off than they were four years ago. It'll have to be a different question for the president to get reelected. And that question has to be, we've gone through this horrible, the, the worst economic experience since the Great Depression. Who do you think is better equipped to rebuild the economy and restore prosperity going forward? That's a tougher question than ask, because everybody knows whether they're better off than they were four years ago or not. So it's a fairly straightforward question. The question of who will be better to make it good in the future is a much more difficult question. But he has some reason to argue that, 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 that that's a point in his favor. And the polling that I've seen shows that still, even with the worst economy since the Great Depression, People say that they have more confidence in the president on the economic issue, not on all issues, but on the economic issue, than they do with the Democrats. Anna, what do you think? Look at um, people. I mean, for sure, the argument he has to make is that. By the way, I'm 
I don't believe this, but I oversaw the greatest expansion of, of the American economy in the history of the world, and I'm solely responsible for it. And therefore, you should trust me to rebuild after this crisis. And that's the argument he has to make. And I've certainly in focus groups heard people more Republican leaning or whatever say some things like that. Like he, he's a businessman, you know, he, he understands the economy. Um, that's the argument he has to make. Um, I think it's a hard argument to make because I think we don't really fully know kind of the scale or the longevity of what's going to happen. And we're in a moment right now where I think people are willing to say, well, he didn't cause coronavirus. Um, people will also say he reacted too slowly uh, and it made it worse, but he didn't cause it and he didn't cause the economic collapse. There would have been a shutdown. It just would have been early, it should have been in January and February. So I think in that sense, they don't blame him for what's happening, but they are gonna blame him for how the recovery goes. And what's going to happen when the eight weeks of an extra $600 a week of unemployment benefits run out? Like right now, there are people making more money on unemployment benefits than they made in their jobs. That's going right. to very soon, right, um, for many, many people. Um, what happened, you know, the, the PPP loans, you have to spend it within eight weeks of getting it, okay? There are people who can't bring back their, their laid-off workers to get the money. Anyway, my point is, is that all these aspects of stimulus um, are going to end relatively soon and you're going to have uh, a lot of people struggling even more even as the economy is opening up and so i don't think we know yet how bad it's going to be but my instinct if you go you know even if you go back to the stimulus um from 2009 that part of the problem was it wasn't enough and you know we know just today that mnuchin's been sitting on 500 billion dollars and he's not given out right and so they will, they mark my words, they will make the same mistake and not do enough for all kinds of reasons. And so I'm not an economist, but it seems to me that in two months, things are going to be very bleak and there's going to be less help. And so that's where I think the rub, that's the rub for Trump around saying he's the one who can do it if the next six months are just struggle, 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 even as the economy starts to open up some. Finn, let me ask you this. You're a student of American history and it is typically the case that uh, in an election, presidential election, where the incumbent is on the ballot, that the election is a referendum on that candidate. Um, Charles Black, who you know, said, if Donald Trump um, is, uh, is on the ballot and he is the question that people are talking about, he's sure to lose. Uh, I understand the point. Um, and I think that there's some truth to it. Look, I, I, here's how I have looked at this election for a while. And it, it surprisingly, the numbers have not changed even in the midst of this crisis. Anna, tell me if you disagree with this. I, look, I think Trump has had a remarkably stable approval rating of around 45%, plus or minus, up and down a little bit. But about 45% of the people say that they approve of him. And about 51, 52, 53% say they disapprove of him. Uh, so I expect that he's got about, that it'll be easy for him to get 45% of the vote out there because they like him anyway, and they'll, they'll want to vote three like it. His job is to convince three, he doesn't have to get a majority, we know that, because he he's got to win in the Electoral College, but he's got to get three or 4% of the voters to vote for him even though they don't like him. And that means it can't, as, as Charlie Black indicates, it really can't be for them a referendum on Donald Trump. It's got to be a referendum on the Democratic Party. And I really, 
I think more the Democratic Party than Biden, because I think Biden at the end of the day is a largely acceptable figure. Yes, they're going to make, you know, he makes gaffes and, you know, he, he, they, he feeds into the argument that he's a little too old. I don't believe that myself, but, you know, he's, he's gaff prone. But the Democratic Party as a whole has moved to the left and people are aware of that. And Bernie Sanders was dominant for a long time. And uh, the squad made a lot of, has made a lot of news. And, you know, you've got Trump's, Trump's got to convince three or 4% of the people to vote for him, even though they don't like him, which means it has to be a referendum for them on something other than Trump. And as you know, Vin, um, and I'm sure Anna's about to jump in on this, when you look at polling among what are sometimes referred to as double haters, that is, they don't approve of either Trump or Biden, we're seeing a very large uh, tilt of those voters to Biden, which right. is a change from 2016 when it went the other way for Trump. So how does that scenario play out if you've got this more intense dislike of Trump? Well, I think that that's I think that's a reflection of the fact that most elections, when you have an incumbent on the ballot, are referenda on the incumbent, and and so far that little percentage that I have identified as critical for him, if pushed to the wall, say no, I, I dislike the guy that's in there more than I dislike the guy that's running against him, which tells you what the Trump campaign is going to be like for the next several months, and it's already starting a very very harsh and negative. Uh, campaign aimed at discrediting Biden, but they've got some advantages, and it might work. I don't want to. I don't want to completely leave the discussion without mentioning just the technical aspects of the campaign. The Trump campaign is going to be really good. Now Biden's going to catch up on the fundraising. They did a joint fundraising. They did a joint fundraising agreement now with the Democratic National Committee, so his fundraising is going to catch up. But the Trump organization has really been putting together a huge technological advantage in terms of volunteers. In the 2016 campaign, just about this, a million and a half people attended Trump rallies. I don't know what that number will be by the time we get to 2020. And of course, the inability to do rallies because of COVID affects that. But they have millions and millions of people that have gone to these rallies and they don't just show up and cheer. They sign them up, they get all the data on them, they motivate them, they communicate with them, they get them to go out there and work for Trump. He's going to have a better army on the ground than, than Joe Biden is. We'll also have Russia. And, pardon me? We'll also have Russia. And well, we have to disagree about that. I don't see much evidence there's of that. pretty strong evidence that there's still Rush, there was Russian interference in 18 and there continues to be Russian interference now. And oh, that'll, be, that'll be a great topic for our next But uh, No, but I think it's a, it's a real thing. And I think it's, it, it's, it's real, it's true. Right. We have to disagree on whether or not that's a real thing. But it's true. It's there. Um, I, I, I don't think so. Anna, Anna, let me just pick up on this topic that Vince raised. Uh, earlier this month, David Axelrod and David Plouffe, who are kind of the, the, the geniuses behind Obama's campaign wins, they wrote a piece in the New York Times, um, which was a bit brutal, particularly coming from them. They referred to Mr. Uh, Biden as being mired in a basement like an astronaut beaming back to Earth from the International Space Station. They talked about his uh, online speeches as really out of touch with their own time. They talked about the tremendous um, advantage that the Trump campaign has. Uh, they say it's a factor of 15 to one. 
in terms of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the rest. Um, how is it that, that Joe Biden, uh, you know, builds a credible, competitive, uh, and effective campaign organization, given where he is right now? Um, well, he has no choice. I mean, I think that he's, he's had the unfortunate, in, in some ways, he, he's had the unfortunate, um, you know, he's in the unfortunate situation that the, the way the primary played out and long coronavirus is that he became the presumptive nominee at the moment that the ability to actually have a triumphant campaign and sort of say who he is and what this is about was gone. Uh, and, and, and maybe gone also in the convention. I'm still not sure there'll actually be a convention. So the moments that Democrats have to kind of say, here I am, this defines me, wall-to-wall -wall coverage, here's the matchup, Trump, Biden, didn't happen for him because of what, because of both the rapidity of uh, Sanders collapse coinciding with coronavirus and to be fair, um, you know, a campaign in terms of infrastructure that was behind even the other primary candidates and a DNC that also was pretty hollowed out. So a lot, a lot of this really isn't his fault. Um, I don't think we're going to have any problem with fundraising. I think Trump will probably dominate uh, or have a better digital kinds of, you know, campaign, the kinds of things that Vin talked about, but we will catch up. <laughs> and we ran some pretty amazing campaigns in 2018. Um, and we've certainly caught up on fundraising and, and Biden will catch up on fundraising. So I think a lot of the pieces that aren't there yet um, will be there, but it's just a very challenging environment. Um, if, if I had to pick, you know, if I wasn't a Democrat and I wasn't involved, I'd still rather be Biden. I mean, Trump has presided over and, and, and it's his fault, you know, the worst, you know, collapse of this country, you know, since the Spanish yeah. flu. So, so basically you're, and he, I mean, he owns that. And so that is a big advantage, even if Biden's campaign doesn't have the same infrastructure as the Trump. The most, the, the most interesting, I, I, I think very highly of both David Axelrod and David Plouffe, who I know, and there aren't better strategists around. There are equal strategists, but not better. The most interesting thing about that to me was that they felt the need to go public with it in the New York Times. I would have assumed that these are guys who could call up Biden or his top campaign people and give any input that they needed there. They're not publicity seekers. They didn't do it just to get attention to themselves. So there has to be some reason why they did this. And that goes to a, an aspect of dysfunctionality in the Biden campaign. That's speculation on my part, but I can't figure out any other reason why they felt the need to do that publicly. They have brought in Jenna Malley Dillon as manager recently. I, I think you guys got to give him a minute, okay? I mean, I'm not happy about it either that we are where we are, but you guys got to give this guy a minute to get the campaign in the middle of the biggest crisis in the last hundred years in, when you can't campaign the traditional way. He'll, they will get it together, but you got it's going to take a minute. So we're talking again in July or August. This won't be on our agenda because Biden will have closed the gap enough. He will have created a social media, a kind of uh, sophisticated operation. The fundraising will be there. The staff will be there. And you know, the presidential campaigns are not the only actors here. And there is tremendous progressive energy. Um, and you know, whether it's through the, the labor movement um, or Planned Parenthood, but there are many, 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 many efforts to get out the vote, to figure out what to do about early vote. 
very sophisticated, you know, so, you know, we just have a more, um, we have a, we have a less hierarchical and less centralized party than the Republicans do. And that means we're usually more, uh, a little more chaotic and less organized, but we also have a lot of those groups and they're all very well funded. Um, and they all are desperate to get rid of Donald Trump. So I think Biden's efforts, not the only effort out there you take, again, I'll go back to Mark Kelly, that campaign, I mean, if Trump loses Arizona, it'll partly be because of Mark Kelly and his campaign. So it's just not the only thing happening in these places. Okay. Um, Anna, let me ask you about a topic I'm sure you track very closely, which is subgroups of voters, meaning particularly um, older voters, women, and other kind of clusters of voters. In 2018, Democrats picked up fairly sizable advantages all over a lot of parts of the country, uh, particularly in the suburbs for the women uh, and older voters in surprising uh, congressional districts. And it, it really drove the success that Democrats had in congressional races. Do you see that advantage that Democrats had in 2018 midterm election carrying over to the 2020 presidential election? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence that the groups that shifted more Democratic between 16 and 18 have gone back. You know, white college women, 60% are voting for Biden. Um, you know, millennial women, 65% voting for Biden. And I certainly think in the midst of this crisis that he's created, um, that no one's going back. None of these groups are going back. The other thing that's interesting is that um, you know, as a Democrat, we almost never talk about men uh, as target voters, but uh, college-educated men have actually moved significantly toward the Democratic Party. And so, you know, we're about 50-50 with college-educated men, which is a really remarkable, and they really do not like Donald Trump for all the same reasons that a lot of suburban women don't like Donald Trump. But I think it's even more complicated that they're for men. And so you have this massive, I mean, so you have a massive education gap that is driven by women for the most part, but college men are part of it too. You are, the other dynamic that's happening right now, which I'm sure everyone's read about, is that older voters seem to be moving against Trump. Um, and white seniors have been, have been a stalwart group for Republicans. Um, and usually is the reason why they, Republicans do better in midterms since older people are more likely to turn out. And I don't, you know, as Vin said, these are all snapshots in time. I don't know if it endures, but we're seeing some real erosion with older voters. Um, and so, you know, part in part because like a lot of them are the ones who are dying and Trump made it pretty clear he doesn't care, right? So, I mean, if you're over 70, you know, and have a comorbidity, you know this president actually doesn't care if you die. So um, I think that is a big part of why we've seen that, that shift. Um, where there's some weaknesses right now around younger and Hispanic voters around Biden. But I gotta say, these, as a, what I know for camp, campaigns that I do, they are the late, they are the low information, late engagers. So I'm not panicked about it. Like Hispanic voters always are weaker in the beginning, are always later to decide and later to participate. I mean, every poll I ever do, we're doing less well with Hispanics than we end up actually doing on election day. So um, those are things of current concern for sure. But I don't necessarily, I'm not particularly concerned that we aren't going to do very well with Hispanic and, and uh, Latino voters. I think you know, the strength for Trump remains white, uh, non-college men. There are more people without a college education than with a college education in this country. And the one final thing I would say is that because of the electoral college, 
um, it is still possible for Trump to win, obviously, even with all of these shifts, um, because some of the states that are in play as battleground states don't have big suburban college educated, you know, and I'm not talking about like red, red states, I'm talking about like Wisconsin, right? So, um, you know, there are um, states that are in, or, you know, in play that don't have big segments that have moved towards Trump. So, Finn Weber, I'm curious what you think of this, and particularly whether you've seen uh, a pattern where midterm elections um, and the results necessarily play out in a presidential election. Is that something that you generally look at a midterm election? And it's like, yeah, that's what's going to happen in two years. Well, so I, I think that the historical record on that is very mixed. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, and, and, you know, it, uh, you know, all the patterns in the 2018 midterm that Anne has talked about ought to be disturbing to Republicans. I mean, I was not a Trump supporter last time around. Been a lot of the reasons were political and go to the issues that Anna raised, our loss of suburban voters, our inability to uh, penetrate a little better the uh, minority communities, communities of color, those things bother me a great deal. And uh, I, I, I do think that there are things in that 2018 election that we ought to be very concerned about that Anna has brought up. But the his, history is not necessarily clear on that. Uh, the Republicans thought uh, they were going to beat Obama for re-election after he lost the House in that in his first midterm election. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't prove to be predictive of anything. So but the jury is still out on that, and we'll see. And the, camp, the campaign does matter. Finn, you mentioned that you were not a Trump supporter in 2016. Question here from Nate Johnson, who says, what do you think of the never-Trump efforts like the Lincoln Projects and its potential uh, to move voters? Well, I know Nate Johnson. He's a particularly insightful young man, but uh, I, I think that the, I, I'm not impressed with their efforts. I read the piece in the Minneapolis Star Tribune by my good friends, Dave Dernberger and Tom Horner, who are, are part of that movement. And I, went, I read it a couple times and I kept asking myself, what is the Republican Party that those people want to see? And I don't limit it just to them, to Steve Schmidt, uh, and John Weaver, who are basically running the national movement. I, I get that they don't like Trump, and they don't like Trump for many of the same reasons I didn't like him last time around. But Anna and I, obviously, as Democrats and Republicans, would really disagree about this. But I have, think you have to look at the last four years of what he's done in office and, and judge that, not just what's your judgment about Trump the person. And he is governed pretty much as a Republican or a conservative would like him to govern. I have no idea what the Lincoln Project wants the Republican Party to look like. And if they could describe that a little bit better with not just getting rid of Trump, but telling us what their policies are, what they would do differently, what they want the Republican Party to stand for. Um, I don't know that they'd persuade me, but I'd at least have a little more respect for the effort that they're putting forth. A lot of them simply also go to the next step and say, it's not just enough to vote against Trump. We have to vote against all Republicans. Uh, you know, voting out the Republican Party is not a way in the end to save the Republican Party, even if you think it needs to be saved from Donald Trump. Anna, a question here from Mike Franklin, uh, which is, has the Democratic Party turned its back on blue-collar voters, particularly after the president's strong courting 
of blue collar workers in terms of protectionism, in terms of encouraging manufacturing, in terms of developing natural resources? Well, it's a really, really hard question um, because on the one hand, certainly from a policy perspective, I would argue Democrats have not turned their back on working class voters, that the policies that Democrats are for are much more likely to benefit working class voters than the policies that Republicans are for. You just have to look at the Trump, the Trump tax cut um, and you know how that got, the benefits of that got distributed, for example. So in policy terms, I don't think the Democratic Party has turned their back on, on white blue collar voters at all. I think that, you know, and, and I'm not doing what's the matter with Kansas, why are, you know, white blue collar voting against their interests. I think there's lots of legitimate interests and competing interests that people weigh when they vote. Um, but I think that what's challenging for Democrats in terms of cultural, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, there's a significant if you look at the, mo the modeling after the 16 election, there's a sig significant in the multivariate <laughs> meaning of the word relationship between racial attitudes and vote for Trump. And they were stronger than um, economic alienation. And that's, I mean, maybe, you know, you can look at political science paper after political science. This is not me making a, you know, I'm not saying some big group are racist. I'm saying if you look at the research, that's very difficult for Democrats to make appeals to a, to a set of voters, not all, but a set who hold a set of attitudes about immigration and about race, gender, because gender, um, you know, gender itself is not a significant particular to the vote, but your attitudes about gender are. And actually hostile sexism is a very, was a very strong predictor of voting for Trump. So I think because of that, it is very difficult for the Democratic Party to either figure out or even want to sometimes try to appeal to white blue collar voters. Then I'm curious about uh, this point that um, Anna's raising. Um, I go back to the report by the Republican National uh, Committee uh, during the Bush uh, years, which warned so the autopsy. Exactly. Right. Warned the Republican Party about uh, isolating itself from the growing proportion of voters who are people of color about being seen as hostile to women, um, professional women in particular. And yet this president seems to have kind of cut a course uh, away from that autopsy. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I was disturbed at the time because I do think that's, I mean, I came in with Ronald Reagan and I was the chairman of Jack Kemp's presidential campaign. I don't think there's ever been a Republican that was more sensitive and ambitious toward getting people of color into the Republican party than the late Jack Kemp. That's my vision of the Republican party. And I don't think the president is pursuing it very aggressively. On the other hand, I don't agree with a lot of what Anna just said. I mean, I, I don't factually argue with her data, but the Democrats, looking at the working class voters that Mike Franklin asked about, always come down to the question of race. There seems to be a lack of willingness to, to understand that there are other issues and other things that alienate those voters from the Democratic Party. Um, in Minnesota, I don't think the Democrats care about the voters in northeastern Minnesota. I think we've almost heard the Democrat leaders in the state say that, that they can win with Minneapolis and St. Paul in the suburbs, and they don't care about what used to be a bastion of working class Democratic voters up in Northeast, because in order to appeal to them, you got to be supportive of mining 
And the, the mantra of the Democratic Party seems to be leave it in the ground, uh, even vital things that we need to grow an economy. So I, you know, I, I think that there are two sides to this question. And I'm not ready quite yet, by the way, to give up on the Hispanic vote. I, I agree with Anna that it, they usually come home to the Democratic Party. But I was surprised, at least in a small way, that Trump actually did a little better, a couple points, with Hispanic voters than Mitt Romney had done. I thought that he would tank with Hispanic voters because of his attitude on immigration. That's not been the case. And there is some evidence that he might be able to increase it again a little bit. Um, that's possible. Can I just say two things? Two things. One, I want to be clear that no matter what Biden has said about energy and whatever people like AOC say about fracking and natural gas, Governor Hickenlooper, Governor Wolf, there are plenty of Democratic governors in these, Governor Bullock, there are a lot of Democratic governors in Western states that frack who are not against it. And they, so let's just be clear that is not the universal position of, and it certainly there have been successful Democratic governors in Western states with large populations who work in, in extraction. Um, I just, I just think that's a just misrepresentation of where the party is on it. And Democrats have had success in that, in that respect. And let me They did not ban fracking, fracking in Colorado, Montana, Pennsylvania. You've got Democratic governors in all those places. You didn't have, did you have, other than Bullock, did you have any Democratic candidates for president that weren't against fracking? Biden wants to ban fracking. Mike, 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 Looper. I like Hickenlooper quite a bit, but he didn't well, get very far running for president. Well, I don't Biden care. He did, was a he wants to ban fracking. He was not against fracking. If anything, fracking jobs increased in Colorado when he was governor. Okay, let's move governor. on. Let's move on to another topic, which is what is campaigning going to look like as we move through the summer and into the fall? Uh, Finn, what is it going to look like? Well, I can't, that's a question I can't answer. I, I can't quite imagine Trump going through a campaign without rallies. I mean, that's, he's going to have to, he's going to try to figure out some way to do this, but an awful lot of it is going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be reflective of what we have to do with the economy and our society as we go forward, which is to figure out safe ways of interacting with each other, social distancing and all those other things. I, so, but I, I don't, I don't think it's going to all be a virtual campaign. I think there'll be a lot of it. It's going on right now. Um, but I think we're going to see the, it's going to be a test of whether or not you can actually open up the economy and society. Um, and, I, and the conventions will be one big test of that. I, I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. I think the Republicans are going to find some way to have a convention. It may not look like past conventions, but it's going to, it's, there's going to be something where people actually congregate and sh sh try to show an example to society of how you can actually continue to have some semblance of normalcy uh, while protecting yourself against this virus. And uh, a number of public health experts are suggesting there's this, a, a probability of a second wave of the coronavirus hitting as we move into October. Yeah. How does uh, that affect what you're talking about? Well, that, I, uh, first of all, we have, I don't have competence to say if that's gonna happen or not. I've read all the same things you have. I think it's interesting that the polling on people's reactions to that in advance is divided along party lines. Democrats think it's going to happen and we're not going to be prepared for it. Republicans think it's less likely to happen, but we will be prepared for it. So it breaks along, along party lines. I, 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 I think that if it happens, if we have a second wave that comes at us 
before the election. The question of are we prepared for it, do we have a better way of dealing with it is going to be front and center. And that'll be the judgment about whether or not the president has been successful or not in dealing with this crisis. Real world treatments, real, real, what happens in the real world will, pardon language, trump whatever goes on in terms of political rhetoric. Anna, it looks like we're not going to have door knocking in 2020. Uh, it looks like it's out the door. Uh, how is it that you make that personal connection with voters so that Democrats are able to convert the support they have in polls into actual ballots in the ballot box? Well, I mean, I'm working on a lot of campaigns right now, so we're dealing with that in real time. And I think there, there's a couple of things. First, I just want to say in reaction to what Ben said, I'm not convinced there'll be in-person campaign events. You know, one, I don't know that we can, you know, that Democrats are more likely to not feel like we're going to be safe if we go out. So I'm not sure Democrats are going to do it. And certainly I doubt there's going to be any concerts or big conferences or any big super spreading events outside of the political world this year. Mostly everything's getting canceled. So I, I, I'm skeptical that Democrats will have big super spreading events um, because I think Democrats will not feel that what that the, there's the right stuff in place. And I think right now all the evidence is, is there's not because there is actually no national plan um, to deal with it. But in terms of campaigns, you know, we've really, um, there are lots and lots of ways to talk to voters. Um, and so, you know, we are, we are texting, we are calling, we are sending direct mail, we are on TV, we are doing Zoom events, uh, we're doing lots of town halls that get really, it's amazing. I mean, one of my congressional clients who's an incumbent got like 500 people to a town hall. I mean, no, sorry, 2,000. Um, so I, I think that there will be a lot of campaign activity, but it'll be direct voter contact. Um, and that one of the things, if you think about relational organizing, which really is about relationships, those relationships can be forged, you know, in all these other ways. So that's where most of my campaigns are going um, in terms of thinking about the, how they're going to function on the assumption that there will not be in person. And if there is, great, but I, we're assuming that it's not going to be possible. And by the way, some of the things that we traditionally do are still, I mean, everyone's still fundraising and raising money at the same clip didn't actually fundraising did not take a hit um, with Corona and the economic collapse on the democratic side anyway, but from what I've seen on the Republican side, not there either. So I think campaigns will actually feel a little traditional. They just won't have the face-to-face. Vin, uh, New York Times and the Washington Post have both run articles in the last few weeks with the headline, something on the order of nervous Republicans see Donald Trump sinking um, and taking them with him. Well, sure. First of all, nervous, not panicked, as I said at the beginning of our discussion here. Second, you know, if they'd run a similar story two months ago or three months ago, it would have been quite different than that. And as we've said, you know, it, it of course is important to look at the situation today and try to analyze it and try to draw some lessons from it. But things can change and are going to change. Now, maybe it'll change in a bad direction, but I, I, I don't, I don't see the, I don't think that the data that I see today indicates that there's anything irreversible in the problems that the Republicans are facing. I, I think that Anna's right, the Democrats, their biggest advantage in, my, in these races is not, in my view, the drag of President Trump, all that matters to, in some places. They've got good candidates. Uh, you know, Anna mentioned Governor Hickenlooper in, in Colorado, who I know a bit. And I think 
Senator Gardner, the Republican's an extraordinarily fine guy and a good senator, but Hickenlooper is an extraordinary guy too. You, if, you, you, if you have extraordinary candidates and the Democrats have many of them, that's an advantage. And that's why, and you can see that in the polling in a lot of these races. But I think it's, it's I, I don't, if they win, it's going to be because they're great candidates, not because Trump is dragging the Republican Party down, in my opinion. Although, as we've said, you got to see how it all unfolds over the next few months. And you've referred several times to, we'll have to see how this plays out. Um, you know, other than kind of magical thinking, what would be the best case scenario that, you know, realistic best case scenario that would really change sure. what we're looking at right now? Well, I, I, I don't think it's that hard to, to, to figure out. Look, look at what the president's rhetoric is saying right now. And it, it's easy to lose sight of it if you're a critic of the president. But the president is betting on optimism. He's saying two things. He's saying we're going to find a, cure, a, a, a vaccine for this uh, problem before the end of the year, and the economy is going to come roaring back better than ever. And Democrats disregard all of that. They think it's blue sky fantasy. It's not going to work. And it's easy to look past, to not think of the president as an optimist because his rhetoric is indeed divisive, and that is inconsistent with a lot of our views of what constitutes optimism. But if you're the average American sitting out there, the potential Trump voter, you hear the president thinks things are going to get better. We're going to solve this problem and we're going to get through it. And the Democrats who want to portray themselves, I know as sensible and caring about public health, there's a great danger that they'll simply come off as being pessimistic and not wanting to open up this economy and not believing that we can solve this problem. So if there's some improvement in the economy and if there's real progress, as we, we saw some evidence of this already this week, evidence that a vaccine could be developed, not for sure, could be, and the stock market reflected that, that possibility in terms of its impact on the economy yesterday with a 900-point gain. Who knows what's going to happen in the next 90 days, but if you see continued evidence that the president is right and we're going to solve this problem and the economy is going to get better, that's a huge advantage for him. If it doesn't happen, his optimism is not going to be rewarded. And people are going to say the Democrats are the realists in this, in this case, and they'll reward them. So, Anna, other than uh, <laughs> mattering naysayers, as Agnew put it. Well, apparently um, we are. No, I mean, look, there's a couple things. <laughs> Point one, we've got Democratic governors who have approval ratings that are 30 to 40 points higher than the president's and they are leading well, and their voters, including in many cases, the majority of Republicans think they're leading well. So again, this, the sweeping statements about the Democratic Party is sort of being gleeful about this not being solved, I think is at direct odds with what you're seeing happening at the state level, because frankly, there is no national leadership on this issue. So, um, and you know, so, so the, the, again, the Democrat, it's much more complicated than, you know, Trump optimists, Democrats pessimists. You've got Democrats at the state level, and also many of whom are starting to open up their economies. So, you know, they're trying. So, the idea that like Democrats want to shut it all down forever to screw, you know, Trump and to win this election is just not, it's just not true. The thing about Trump is, I think you're right about the optimism, okay? But what I think he is suffering from is something that all presidents suffer from, including Bill Clinton, including Barack Obama, which is premature. Oh, and, and Bush, if we think mission accomplished, prematurely declaring success. And it's very hard for Democrats, for, it's very hard for presidents not to do that. So, you know, how, you know, when, when Obama um, was elected and they did stimulus and the economy is still struggling, 
you know, he was out there like things are getting better when they weren't getting better yet. And it felt very tone deaf. Um, you know, George Bush, mission accomplished. Well, it actually wasn't accomplished. It was people feel like he was incompetent. And it's very difficult for presidents to come out and say, this is going to be really hard for a long time, but we're going to do this and this and we'll get there together. But it's going to be hard for a long time. That's very hard for anyone to do. And that's where I think, and what can I say one more thing, please? And if you look at what Cory Gardner and Martha McSally are doing, who are the incumbent Republicans from Colorado and Arizona, their ads are all about, I have saved you. I have sent stimulus checks. I've sent PPP loans. We're winning. We're fixing. We're... And like I said, in eight weeks, that stuff runs out. And so they're a premature declaring of success is different from being optimistic. And, and I think Finn has been pretty clear that if things don't actually improve, he'd probably end up agreeing with you that it's going to look tone deaf. I want to turn to a last topic uh, before we run out of time, which is um, how we how Americans vote in the era of the coronavirus. How do we have safe and secure elections? Um, the question here from uh, Jacob Osterman, uh, is there any concern that some states will restrict or limit mail-in voting um, and that this will benefit Republicans? Then, what do you think? That restrictions will benefit Republicans? I, you know, I, I, I personally am in favor of mail-in voting. I think it's safe and secure. I'm a little puzzled by the political reaction to it because as Anna said before, there at least is some evidence that it benefits Republicans, but the biggest public opponent of it is the president. And I just don't think that he's right about that. Uh, I, I think that I think that the Repub my party has been un has resisted a lot of uh, efforts to expand the franchise that I on which I disagree with them. In our state of Minnesota, it's a long time ago now, but Republicans resisted same day registration, and I thought at that time they're making a mistake here. And I think that there's been no evidence that same-day registration in Minnesota has benefited one party more than the other. It has made it easier for people to vote and expanded the franchise. And commercial for our great state, we always have the highest voter turnout in the country in Minnesota. I think that mail-in voting can work, can be safe, can be and can can go can be expanded to people that are less likely to vote. There is some evidence, as Anna talked about earlier, that. Minority voters are a little bit resistant to it. I don't know how strong that is, but I, I have to believe it can be overcome. Then let me just ask you a follow-up question on this. Uh, there's a lot of fear uh, among Democrats, and you've even heard Joe Biden mention it, that the president's going to cancel the election, the election won't happen. Um, do you think the 2020 election will go forward and that the outcome will determine who's in the White House come January? Yes, I, we're, we're going to have the election on the date that it's scheduled. And whoever wins the, the Electoral College is going to be declared the winner. Now, there's a difference between abiding by the results and accepting the results. Um, it's hard for me to imagine a defeated Donald Trump graciously conceding victory to Joe Biden. But I don't think you need to worry about the election being taken away. I think whoever wins this election will become president of the United States. And the, the institutions of our country are gonna to prove to be stronger than the politics of the moment. Anna, let me uh, ask you, is the issue about um, election tampering by Republicans, suppressing the vote, uh, this rumor uh, or fear that uh, the election may not even happen, is that part of a strategy that Democrats are using to charge up their base? 
No, I think absolutely. I'm aware of, and I'm in lots of strategic conversations with Democrats. Um, no, I do. I but I think there is legitimate fear, and it's it's so it's very subtle though. It's like, okay, we're going to allow mail in, but you know, mail in ballots, but you have to request it, and you need postage is really different than sending a ballot to everybody with postage. And in states that don't have a culture of vote by mail, where some people may distrust, you're, it's gonna affect turnout and it's gonna disproportionately hurt Democratic voters. That's my concern, but it's subtle. It's very, you know, you know Governor X can say, yep, we're letting, we're allowing mail in, you know, what's wrong with that, right? But it's, but, but it's the harder you make it to vote, the harder it is to vote. So like, Again, if we had a different president in Congress, probably there would be some kind of at least encouragement through, through money, at least, to have every state send people a ballot with postage. I mean, like my kid doesn't even know what a mailbox is. Talk about going out to buy a stamp to put it in on, on a mail-in ballot. So that is my concern is that, they'll, that, that, that they will reduce the number of polling places because of coronavirus in certain states They'll make vote by mail available, but it'll be harder than it should be, and that will hurt Democrats. I don't, and, and that is, you know, we, we are thinking very hard about what do we need to do in terms of educating people about vote by mail and making it easier for them to vote by mail by educating them how to get a ballot, all that kind of stuff. But the notion that, I mean, look, I am scared that Trump's not going to accept it. I, I agree with Vin, I can't see a, a Roberts court deciding not to certify the election, but. I'm concerned that he's not going to accept it and his supporters and there's going to be violence and that there's going to be chaos and governing is going to be very hard and that already our democratic norms have taken a big hit um, in the last four years and that they're going to erode even more. The notion of a peaceful transition is like the foundation of the stability of our country. And for that to not be sort of an assumption is terrifying. Uh, so, you know. I, 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 accept, I have to say, I, I think Anna is right about that. And I've said, I don't think Trump would graciously concede and his supporters would be alienated and that would be a bad thing. On the other hand, declaring in advance that the Trump campaign is going to win by voter suppression and Russian interference means it's not likely that if Trump wins, his, the other side is going to accept it either. So there has to be some effort to say to people on both sides of the aisle, look, our, our, there's no such thing anywhere in the world as a perfect election but we do it better here than anybody else and the election is gonna be legitimate and the outcome needs to be respected. We have to leave it there. Uh, <laughs> we've run out of time. I wanna thank both of you and I hope, this is a question, will you come back and do this again? Well, I mean, Vin and I have never been so spicy together before, so I don't know. We might <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be there. <laughs> oh, come on, Anna, we'll get along just fine. I know. <laughs> well, it's been great. Thank you both. I wanna just mention the folks if you found this interesting, it will be posted online uh, in a few days, and we will send you an email with that information before signing off. I do want to thank the folks who made this possible. Uh, Kate Connors, who's the person uh, making sure that uh, the technical part worked out. Thank you, Kate Connors. Uh, Mike Curry, uh, who did all the logistical work. Thank you, Mike. Lee Chittenden, the uh, magician, um, and Kate Semino who's been uh, playing a bigger role in our events. Thank you to all of you for joining us and come back. We'll be back here next week. Thanks again, Vin. And thank you very Thanks, much, Lorena. Thank you.